Chapter 19 of Philip Drew, Administrator, by Edward House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by The Progressing America Project. Chapter 19 War Clouds Hover. Gloria was splendidly successful in her undertaking and within two weeks she was ready to place at Philip's disposal an amount far in excess of anything he had anticipated. It was so easy that I have a feeling akin to disappointment that I did not have to work harder, she wrote in her note to Philip announcing the result. When I explained the purpose and the importance of the outcome, almost everyone approached seemed eager to have a share in the undertaking. In his reply of thanks, Philip said, The sum you have realized is far beyond any figure I had in mind. With what we have collected throughout the country, it is entirely sufficient, I think, to effect a preliminary organization, both political and military. If the final result is to be civil war, then the states that cast their fortunes with ours will, of necessity, undertake the further financing of the struggle. Philip worked assiduously upon his organization. It was first intended to make it political and educational, but when the defiant tone of Selwyn, Thor, and Rockland was struck, and their evident intention of using force became apparent, he almost wholly changed it into a military organization. His central bureau was now in touch with every state, and he found in the West a grim determination to bring matters to a conclusion as speedily as possible. On the other hand, he was sparring for time. He knew his various groups were in no condition to be pitted against any considerable number of trained regulars. He hoped, too, that actual conflict would be avoided, and that a solution could be arrived at when the forthcoming election for representatives occurred. It was evident that a large majority of the people were with them. The problem was to get a fair and legal expression of opinion. As yet there was no indication that this would not be granted. The preparations on both sides became so open that there was no longer any effort to work under cover. Philip cautioned his adherents against committing any overt act. He was sure that the administration's forces would seize the slightest pretext to precipitate action and that, at this time, would give them an enormous advantage. He himself trained the men in his immediate locality, and he also had the organization throughout the country trained, but without guns. The use of guns would not have been permitted except to regular authorized militia. The drilling was done with wooden guns, each man hewing out a stick to the size and shape of a modern rifle. At his home, carefully concealed, each man had his rifle. And then came the election. Troops were at the polls and a free ballot was denied. It was the last straw. Citizens gathering after nightfall in order to protest were told to disperse immediately, and upon refusal, were fired upon. The next morning showed a death roll in the large centers of population that was appalling. Wisconsin was the state in which there was the largest percentage of the citizenship unfavorable to the administration and to the interests. Iowa, Minnesota, and Nebraska were closely following. Philip concluded to make his stand in the West, 
and he therefore ordered the men in every organization east of the Mississippi to foregather at once at Madison, and to report to him there. He was in constant touch with those governors who were in sympathy with the progressive or insurgent cause, and he wired the governor of Wisconsin, in cipher, informing him of his intentions. As yet travel had not been seriously interrupted, though business was largely at a standstill, and there was an ominous quiet over the land. The opposition misinterpreted this, and thought that the people had been frightened by the unexpected show of force. Philip knew differently, and he also knew that civil war had begun. He communicated his plans to no one, but he had the campaign well laid out. It was his intention to concentrate in Wisconsin as large a force as could be gotten from his followers east and south of that state, and to concentrate again near Des Moines every man west of Illinois whom he could enlist. It was his purpose to then advance simultaneously both bodies of troops upon Chicago. In the South there had developed a singular inertia. Neither side counted upon material help or opposition there. The great conflict covering the years from 1860 to 1865 was still more than a memory, though but few living had taken part in it. The victors in that mighty struggle thought that they had been magnanimous to the defeated, but the well-informed Southerner knew that they had been made to pay the most stupendous penalty ever exacted in modern times. At one stroke of the pen, two thousand millions of their property was taken from them. A pension system was then inaugurated that taxed the resources of the nation to pay. By the year 1927, more than five thousand millions had gone to those who were of the winning side. Of this the South was taxed her part, receiving nothing in return. Cynical Europe said that the North would have it appear that a war had been fought for human freedom, whereas it seemed that it was fought for money. It forgot the many brave and patriotic men who enlisted because they held the Union to be one and indissoluble, and were willing to sacrifice their lives to make it so, and around whom a willing and grateful government threw its protecting arms. And it confused those deserving citizens with the unworthy many, whom pension agents and office seekers had debauched at the expense of the nation. Then, too, the South remembered that one of the immediate results of emancipation was that millions of ignorant and indigent people were thrown upon the charity and protection of the Southern people to care for and to educate. In some states, 60% of the population were Negroes, and they were as helpless as children and proved a heavy burden upon the 40% of whites. In rural populations, more schoolhouses had to be maintained, and more teachers employed for the number taught, and the percentage of children per capita was larger than in cities. Then, of necessity, separate schools had to be maintained. So, altogether, the load was a heavy one for an impoverished people to carry. The humane, the wise, the patriotic thing to have done was for the nation to have assumed the responsibility of the education of the Negroes for at least one generation. What a contrast we see in England's treatment of the Boers. After a long and bloody war, which drew heavily upon the lives and treasures of the nation, England's first act was to make an enormous grant to the conquered Boers that they might have every facility to regain their shattered fortunes, 
and bring order and prosperity to their distracted land. We see the contrast again in that for nearly a half century after the Civil War was over, no Southerner was considered eligible for the presidency. On the other hand, within a few years after the African Revolution ended, a Boer general, who had fought throughout the war with vigor and distinction, was proposed and elected premier of the United Colonies. Consequently, while sympathizing with the effort to overthrow Selwyn's government, the South moved slowly and with circumspection. End of Chapter 19